0: Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. This is broadcast number 85, and today is July 6, 2015. And today we have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Ryan McGraw. He is the newest addition to the faculty here at Greenville Seminary and uh, has just moved his family across the entire country and is settling in and um, getting ready to get to work here at the seminary. And We're going to be talking with him on a particular subject that um, is of particular interest to me, selfishly speaking, but I think it should be an interest to everybody, and it's it's the topic of preaching and corporate prayer and how they work together, how they go together. Um, Oftentimes I think we think of these as separate things and that there's no connection whatsoever, but I think we're going to see in this discussion that there is an intimate and intricate um, involvement in both and how they feed and work together. So more about that in just a minute i do want to bring everybody up to speed on what is going on here on the podcast i uh, just spent this morning working not too long but i spent a little bit of time working on the website trying to change uh, its appearance so it's new new design uh, i think it's simpler it's more straightforward uh, easier to navigate so take a look at it when you can the website of course is confessingourhope.com And, of course, don't forget about the mobile app. There's been some problems with our mobile app in recent weeks. In fact, apparently it's been going on for a couple of months, and I didn't even know about it, and it wasn't even being published on the Google Play Store. Um, But it is now. Uh, I've resolved that issue, so that is all uh, taken care of. So um, avail yourself of the GPTS mobile app. It has the podcast on it, of course, chapel sermons, and our theology conference Lectures um, for the last three years. So use that to your edification as you are able. Of course, if you have any questions about the podcast, you want to write in the website, uh, write in to me. The email address is confessingourhope at gpts.edu. Additionally, we do have the widely popular segment that we do each month, well, almost every month, Faith and Practice. That is the time when we sit down and take questions from you, the listener and uh, two esteemed members of the faculty uh, will answer your questions, or at least attempt to, and maybe disagree with each other. That would be interesting. Uh, But anyway, uh, our next edition will be coming up on August 3rd. August 3rd, so send your questions in. Again, the website, confessingourhope.com, has all the information. And if we do use your question, you might get $10 off to a Banner of Truth book. So send your questions. No subject is really off-limits, so um, send them in and we'll be glad to deal with them uh, in due course. Now, as I indicated, we're going to be talking with Dr. Ryan McGraw. He is... uh, I don't even know... (laughs) I don't even know what exactly your title is. I know you're a professor of something here, systematic theology, but you'll tell us in a minute uh, what that But is. We're going to be talking with him on a booklet he wrote. I think it's about 36 pages long or so. Um, And the title of it is, uh, what is the title of it? I'm working from a Kindle edition, How Do Preaching and Corporate Prayer Work Together? And it's coming out of the Cultivating Biblical Godliness series put out by Reformation Heritage Books. So, Ryan, it's good to have you on, and all of my rambling, I forgot what your title is, so why don't you tell us so we all know. (laughs) Thanks, Bill.
1: I'm Associate Professor of Systematic Theology, and I'll also be teaching some
0: practical theology. That's right. I remember that because I was going over the schedule this morning, actually, um, my own schedule, uh, laying out my own study plans for, <coughs> for the um, semester. And you're also teaching the homiletics course.
1: I'm teaching one of the practicum courses. Yep.
0: Okay. So that is uh, uh, what he'll be doing. Uh, his plate is pretty full, as I've already noted from the schedule. Um, so anyway, look forward to having you here and uh, being in one of your classes, not this fall, but in spring, I'll be taking at least one of your classes. But Cultivating Biblically Godliness, Biblical Godliness. We, we we did a discussion, I don't remember what it was on, and I don't remember when. It, it was recent. Um, maybe you'll remind me. But what is the series designed to do? It sounds like it sounds obvious, but
1: why don't you tell us? It's that I developed with Joel Beakey, and the idea is that the primary purpose of the series is to promote experimental godliness uh, what that means is, is largely the practical outworking and the practical application of the Christian life. So, for example, in contrast to other series that may have booklets on the existence of God, or who is Jesus Christ, or, or things along that line, what we've attempted to do is take things a step further, have a very sermon-like feel to the booklets where they're very direct and they're full of application, and they're really aiming at the heart and the practice of biblical godliness and changing our lives in service of Christ. And so um, I, th- I believe with all of my heart that the subjects that we are treating in this series are largely what I have in view when I pray for the revival of the Church. Mm-hmm. And this really does seem to be a series of missing ingredients in modern
0: Christianity. Sure. Now, these, these, these books, they're really not books. They're more like booklets, right? They're yes. 35, 40 pages, not long. I, I read the one we're going to talk about this morning, or this afternoon, or whenever it is. Um, I read it in about, well, it was 30-something pages, probably half an hour at the most, probably a slow read. I don't read very fast, but... Um, but the one we, we're going to talk about is on the subject of preaching and corporate prayer. Interestingly, how uh, interesting how you you connect those pieces. So I guess the best way to approach this, this booklet is, first, what was the genesis or why this book? Why did you choose this subject, um, and, and what was the launching pad, as it were, for the subject?
1: Probably a number of reasons why I chose the subject and wanted to write the booklet. Uh, One would be just my broader studies in the subject of preaching over the years, and cultivating a desire for and a practice of corporate prayer and asking the Spirit of God to glorify Christ and bless the ministry of the Word. And then when I was preaching through the Gospel of John— When I got to John chapter 14, specifically verses 12 through 14, on which this little booklet is based, there Jesus tells his disciples that they will do the same works that he has done and greater things as well. And the means of accomplishing these greater things are, or is, uh, the corporate prayer of the people of God. And uh, in summary, we'll come to the text in a moment, I'm sure, but I think in comparison with the book of Acts, what Jesus is actually arguing is that the greater things that those who believe in him would do would be seeing people come to faith in Christ through spirit-filled preaching. And in contrast to his 120 disciples in the upper room, Peter's first sermon sees 3,000 souls added to the church, and so the refrain goes throughout Acts. And then in Acts 4 and other places throughout Acts, we see the conjunction of, of preaching and corporate prayer. So partly because of my own experience and conviction, partly through my ordinary course of preaching through the Bible and working through the text, and then also because of the inherent importance of the subject— And the fact that the prayer meeting, though it is one of the most vital aspects of the ministry of the Church, is by far the most neglected ministry and meeting of most local churches. Mm
0: -hmm. Why do you think that is?
1: There could be a number of reasons. I think, on the one hand, uh, people are more willing to go to a Bible study because they tend to think there's something in it for them, Mm -hmm. and they tend to approach the worship of God and the study of the Bible as something of a spectator— and they're there receiving, and they're there listening, and not necessarily viewing themselves as an active participant Mm. in everything that's going on. And so as a result, when we come to the prayer meeting, the attitude is that there's really nothing for me here. If there's a meal or there's a Bible study or or something like that, then I'll come, but not uh, the prayer itself. And part of this is needing to be re-educated in terms of what the prayer meeting is, One of the things that I often remind our our congregation of, or or I guess now my former congregation, is that when we are coming to the corporate prayer meeting, we are all actively engaging in the work of the kingdom, and we're spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight. Mm. And that's what we're, we're aiming to do. So a lot of it is that mentality is not necessarily there anymore. Um, I don't know who said this. I think it was uh, a broad evangelical pastor of some sort, and someone related this to me secondhand. Uh, But somebody said that you could tell how popular uh, the church is by the attendance of morning worship. You could tell how popular the pastor is by the attendance of evening worship, and you could tell how popular Jesus is by attendance of the prayer meeting. And if that's true, it's quite an indictment. Uh, But to state it positively as well, I want to stress in this booklet, or I have tried, and in my preaching as well, that the prayer meeting is one of the best opportunities the local church has to promote the glory of Christ Mm -hmm. and to spread the gospel.
0: Well, what do you say to people? When talking about corporate prayer, I don't don't think we have to define that. I think it's self-evident what we mean. Um, But for the sake of those that may not know... What are we talking about? Corporate prayer.
1: Uh, in this in this particular instance, we're talking about the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ gathering in his name, and specifically asking him to further the work of the gospel and to spread the kingdom. I state it that way because I think in many churches there are not prayer meetings in existence or, or being observed in the present. Uh, But where they are, it often becomes a opportunity to deal with people's needs, Mm -hmm. such as physical concerns and um, uh, looking for a job, sometimes people uh, praying even for pets and and other things along those lines. And most of that is is fine and well and good, and, and much of it is even helpful, but in the book of Acts for example maybe the best way to illustrate what a prayer meeting should look like is in Acts chapter 4 after the authorities threaten Peter and tell him to no longer preach in the name of Jesus Christ the first thing that he does is he goes to the prayer meeting and he gathers together with the people of God for the sole purpose of prayer Mm. and they pray for the Spirit to grant boldness to the preaching of the gospel and that's, of course, answering to the threats not to preach the gospel. And because these men are apostles, at least Peter, they also pray for the Spirit to perform signs and wonders and to testify with the ministry of the Word. If you read through the text, however, even with the signs and the wonders, the, the greatest emphasis ends up falling on speaking the Word with boldness. And when they come to the prayer meeting, Peter prays Psalm 2, and he leads the group in prayer. And because Christ is King and Lord of the nations, he's able to thwart the threats and the efforts of those who are, are coming against Peter and telling him not to preach. And on the basis of praying through Psalm 2, he with the other disciples asked that the Lord would grant the Spirit. As a visible and physical testimony, the building is shaken and then they go forth preaching with boldness. I think that's a a perfect model in the New Testament of what Jesus is actually aiming at in the text in John 14. And Peter is using the great means of when you all come together, it's the plural in in John 14, Mm -hmm. whatever you ask in my name, I'll give you. And that's exactly what Peter's doing there.
0: What do you say to to people who... Don't participate if, in fact, the church has corporate prayer, which, as you've already indicated, it's not as much a priority today as it was has been in the past. I, I remember growing up as a as a young boy, and um, well, aggravated by the fact that we had to go to prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. Um, I was a young, well, anyway, it, it was commonplace. Uh, it, it seemed like every church, I, I grew up in a Baptist background, it seemed like every church uh, in town was doing prayer meetings on Wednesday nights or whatever night it was. And um, But now it seems as though the, the prevailing argument for people is that it's just, it's an interruption to their week, we're too busy, we have jobs, we have families, we don't have time.
1: I think there are several ways to approach it, and if at all possible, I, I prefer to approach things in a very positive way first. I think we need to instruct people in the prayer meeting and come under the assumption at the present time that the biblical warrant for the prayer meeting and its importance have largely been lost and is not being taught and preached Mm -hmm. in many cases. And so we need to try to take people uh, to texts such as the one that I expound uh, in the booklet and also through the book of Acts and in other cases in the New Testament, and seek to show them the purpose and the importance of the prayer meeting, and to get them excited about the prayer meeting. Uh, just as one example, uh, Pierre Marcel uh, is, is willing to say, and, and go so far as to say, that there's a sense in which the congregation is more responsible for the sermon than the minister. And he doesn't mean that the pastor shouldn't study, the pastor shouldn't pray, the pastor doesn't have to put in blood, sweat, and tears. What he does mean is that the sermon is not just the act of an individual, but the act of the congregation. And the primary way that the congregation actively participates in the ministry of the word is through the corporate prayer meeting as well as their private and family prayers. And I've often told people that if a pastor has a praying church, that church can, by the blessing of God, take a man. With mediocre gifts and make him a powerful preacher. Conversely, if a man has extraordinary gifts, his preaching will fall flat without the prayers of the people of the Lord. So there's the instruction in terms of, of getting people excited about the prayer meeting because of what it actually is. Of course, another thing and and in some ways I would say the best means of promoting and building up the prayer meeting is praying for the prayer meeting. <laughs> and that's the thing that's often overlooked. How do we get people out? How do we encourage people? How do we get people together? But do we actually stop and pray and ask the Lord to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication upon his servants and to drive them to prayer and and to bring them to the prayer meeting? In one church in which I ministered, we found that when I first came to the prayer meeting— It was literally myself and my wife. Over the course of about seven years, we built up to about 60% or more of the church. Nothing was earth-shattering. We added about one or two families a year. Mm. And through praying for the prayer meeting and through showing the people why we ought to pray, why we're excited about the prayer meeting— why is that why this is one of the primary means by which they can spread the gospel, then uh they began to come slowly over time. And so uh those those would be the two primary things. I could add a bunch of other things, I think, but that would be uh the best place to start, I believe.
0: Let me ask a question. It's it's just one that popped into my head as I was listening to you talk. Um obviously the prayer meeting, at least in our context, in a press training reformed context. It's a it's a stated meeting of the Church, uh, the session. The elders of the Church um, uh, deem it um, important, necessary, and, 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 and invite. Uh, that's probably not the right word, um, but ask, request uh, the membership to get behind it, to to participate in it. What do you do—and this is a little off the point that we're talking about today, but it is, a, I think, a valid question. Uh, what do you do when you have— um, for instance, in your seven-year wanderings in the desert, as it were, uh, how do you deal with that as elders in the Church when you have members that just won't come? I mean, I realize that's a very open-ended question, because there could be a number of reasons that are good and legitimate, but in general, just rebellious, stiff-necked, I'm not coming, uh, God hasn't ordered me to do this, whatever.
1: Well, I I think, first and foremost... The primary thing we need to aim at is full participation of all church officers. Mm. Mm. Sometimes one reason why people are not taking the prayer meeting seriously is the elders themselves are not willing to prioritize it, and they're not setting the example. And so if any elders are are listening to this and, and hearing this, then I implore you men to... Respond to this and and get the booklet. Think through these things, develop a biblical conviction as to why they're important, and begin leading by example, and show the people that the prayer meeting is a priority. Everybody's circumstances is going to be a little bit different. There was a young man that we had in our home almost weekly in Sunnyvale, and if he's listening, he'll know who he is. But uh, he. Um, he often would go to work at 7 a.m. and not get home till about 11 at night. And in Silicon Valley, unfortunately, that was fairly uh, com- common. Yeah. We had a number of people that weren't able to participate in the prayer meeting for that reason. Uh, this young man, as well as some others, because they couldn't come to the corporate prayer meeting, would often find a time really late at night, actually, with some other young men in the church where they at least would get together to pray and to gather. So it wasn't the the stated prayer meeting where the elders uh, were calling the people together, but they he did the best he could with the time that he had. And I always think it's a wise thing to do. We had a a group of ladies in another congregation that met together every Thursday evening cuz they all had unconverted husbands, and so they met together to to pray for them. Um, at least two of the husbands were converted eventually mm-hmm. as a result of those prayer meetings, and a couple of others they 're still praying for so i think I think we need to do the best that we can. What we need to do is is with families, not just teaching publicly but perhaps in a home visit or over lunch or or in some personal interpersonal way. We need to be able to exhort people and encourage people, and if, if possible, we want people to feel as though they're missing something extraordinary in the prayer meeting, and we want them to be jealous of
0: our time there until they want to join us. Mm. Yeah, that's well said, and, and I appreciate that as well as an elder and, and dealing with some of these things um, and being rebuked in some ways as well. Um, <laughs> um, but what do you do with the objection that someone would may present and uh, and I've read dr beakey's book uh, the family at church where he he uh does a a wonderful job of of proving the biblical necessity uh of of corporate prayer not just individual prayer but how, and how those are different and maybe that's a good question for us to take up but in it just quickly and and i know we're uh, again a little afield from the book, but we'll come back to that i, I promise um What is the biblical proof, as it were, that corporate prayer, not individual prayer, I mean, we all know, I don't think anybody would argue that a Christian would say, I don't need to pray. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The the Bible's obviously clear on that. But corporate prayer, how do you prove that from Scripture? And and if you had the objection, someone sat in front of you and said, well, you know, Dr. McGraw, Pastor McGraw, um, I I just don't see in the Scriptures where I'm required to pray with the rest of the people in the Church.
1: In a way, um... I I will say, at least in my experience, I've found that kind of objection to be more rare than the objection that what's the difference between me praying as an individual or all of us coming well, together? Why is that more effective? Yeah, great.
0: Deal with that too, um, then, because that's a gr- that's a great point.
1: In terms in terms of the former case, I, I probably wouldn't uh, uh, be so blunt in in this regard, but. I'm I'm tempted to say, have you read the New Testament? Uh, <laughs> right, because right. in some respects, uh, there is the text that I've mentioned in John 14 where Jesus is not just saying, when you and you and you and you pray, but when y'all pray, when all of you gather together, it is a plural. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't necessarily make too much of the plural if it wasn't bolstered by continual and pressing examples throughout the book of Acts. What are the disciples doing when they're waiting for the day of Pentecost. They're all gathered in one accord in prayer in the upper room. What do they do when Peter is threatened when he's, um, again, imprisoned in, in and, and then uh, threatened not to preach the gospel? He goes to the corporate gathering of God's people for prayer. And you have other examples that go throughout the rest of the book of Acts, And uh, even the Lord Jesus himself, when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't simply go alone, but takes three of his disciples to come and to watch and pray with him. And so we have a constant example of this in the New Testament, as well as the explicit teaching in John 14. And I could add other examples to this also. Sure. But I think um, uh, the, the, the issue... Of course there is we see clear New Testament example and precedent and command and if you don't understand immediately why something is done at least if you see it in the Bible it ought to be done and then you pray that the Lord would help you to understand why it ought to be done and that's partly why I've written this booklet is to help explain the why Uh, the other issue that I mentioned and, and you asked me to deal with is somebody saying, well, what's the difference between me praying in my closet at home and coming to the prayer meeting and God doesn't even need our prayers and he can act when, where, and how he pleases whether I pray or not? Well, there's something uh, of a a hyper-Calvinist tendency to that type of thinking, hyper-Calvinism there, meaning uh, that God is sovereign and therefore it doesn't really matter what we do, whether we pray whether we're responsible with with our actions and whatnot. And uh, if I could borrow an analogy here from William Perkins, uh, he answers this objection in the 17th century uh, by saying, well, what if you tried to apply that kind of reasoning to food and said, "If, if I'm going to live tomorrow, God is going to sustain My life. He doesn't need my food to sustain me. He doesn't need my drink. He doesn't need anything else that I have. So I'm going to to stop eating because God can sovereignly sustain my life. Well, what you're going to find is in a few weeks you're going to have a dead man. And so Perkins uh, rightly says that this is an illustration of how God uses means. Well, prayer is one of those means that God has appointed. And James tells us very clearly as individuals, you do not have because you do not ask. He also says that sometimes you ask and you ask wrongly or ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures and you also don't have in such a case. But Jesus then says positively, if you ask anything in my name, I will give it. And he doesn't simply say you as an individual, but you all. So we need to use the means because God has appointed them. We need to use corporate prayer because there's a proved example and command in the New Testament, and God has promised to bless it. Uh, And just one more other note there. Uh, The the Puritan David Clarkson, speaking of public worship, uh, says that God loves to have all of his children together. Mm. He's the father of the family, the head of the household. He loves to have the children gathered. That's why he blesses
0: the corporate gatherings more than the private gatherings. Outstanding answer. I was thinking of another illustration that Perkins probably wouldn't have been affiliated with in his day, but imagine if a person, um, if, if God wanted me to live tomorrow, fine, I'd jump in my car and blindfold, shut my eyes and drive down the road, how long do you think you'll live? Um, <laughs> probably not long, not even a week, <laughs> Right. probably a few days, a few hours, if that, and if a few minutes and be gone. But uh, anyway, um, but that's a great, helpful illustration. Tie the corporate prayer meeting to the core issue that this booklet was, I think, designed to do. Um, how is it then that... Um, Corporate prayer, the body of Christ, locally expressed, comes together, prays diligently. Um, how does that connect then to the preaching that happens in that same church?
1: If if I could appeal very briefly to the text that the book
0: is based. I was hoping upon. you would do that. I was looking for a way to bring the text back, and <laughs> so you did that for me. Thank you. We've
1: uh, <laughs> we've been speaking around it a bit. Yep. We and.
0: Have. Um, and
1: and brought out the gist of what I think it says, and the booklet itself is going to give a fuller exposition. Yep. But in brief, when you look at the text, it's interesting that at least in the New King James Version, Jesus tells the disciples that the same works that I've done, he will do, and then adds, and uh, greater works he will do. Well, In the context, Jesus' works testify to who he is. They're the works that the Father gave him to do, and they're works that prove his divine authority. Mm -hmm. The works that he has in view are things like the raising of Lazarus from the dead, that we see uh, just a few chapters earlier in John. Of course, at the beginning of John, the turning water into wine, the walking on the water, the feeding the 5,000, and the numerous other miracles that John focuses on as teaching points and expounds his doctrine in light of. And so the works that Jesus gave to do, or the Father gave Jesus to do, are the miracles attesting to his divine authority as the great prophet, the Son of God in human flesh. The same works are the apostles accomplishing similar types of things. So uh, we see throughout the book of Acts that the uh, sick are healed, and the dead are raised, and those who are lame from the mother's womb are walking, and they are fulfilling the text in verse 12. They're doing the same works that the Father gave Jesus to do for the same reason, really. Because Hebrews 2 tells us that when the apostles did these signs and wonders, the Spirit was bearing witness that God sent them, that they were speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. Once the canon of Scripture is closed Mm -hmm. and all of divine revelation has been completed and inscripturated, there's no longer a need for those apostolic offices and the confirmatory gifts. That goes far beyond uh, what we're talking about here, but I think it is related to what's there. So the apostles are clearly doing the same works that Jesus did to testify to their divine authority as messengers of Christ and as authors of the New Testament and founders of the New Testament Church. Then he adds greater... Than these he will do. I think a better translation rather than uh, greater works is greater uh, things. The apostles never did greater miracles than Jesus Christ. So, for example, uh, Paul takes a man, Eutychus, who falls out of a, a window after a lengthy evening sermon and raises him from the dead. Jesus goes to the sealed tomb of the stinking and rotting corpse of Lazarus, which has been there for four days, and says, Lazarus, come forth. Mm -hmm. That's just one example, but there's really no comparison between the miracles of Christ and the apostolic miracles. So there's no way in the text in John that he could be saying that uh, the greater things are greater miracles than those of Christ. As D.A. Carson put it well, For the apostles, we only see miracles done occasionally in the book of Acts. In the life of Christ, say, especially Mark's gospel, miracles were his everyday work. And so there's a a clear difference, and Christ does the greater works in that respect. So what are the greater things? Well, I think, again, drawing the parallel with with Acts 4 and other texts in the New Testament, I've already mentioned Acts 2 in Peter's first sermon— the greater things that were done by those who believed in Jesus were instead of laboring for three years with a small group of disciples, the first sermon after the coming of the Holy Spirit sees 3,000 souls added of the church. A couple chapters later, the number adds to 5,000. You have in Acts 3 and 4 the remarkable scene where Peter is preaching before the same audience that that was trying Christ and ultimately crucified him when Peter was in the courtyard and denied Jesus three times. Now the same Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, largely before the same audience, doesn't deny Christ but preaches Christ boldly, and some of the chief priests end up being converted. And then you, you have this refrain throughout the book, book of Acts of daily the Lord was adding to the church. This doesn't mean that every time a pastor opens his mouth and, and preaches a sermon, people are going to leap into the kingdom. What it does mean, though, is there is a difference between the work of the Spirit and the conversion of sinners through the preaching of the gospel after Pentecost versus before. And what Jesus is getting at is these are the greater things that I designed my church to do. And then he describes the means. When you all come together, whatever you all ask in my name, I will give you. Mm-hmm. And he's not saying you ask for a sports car, you want a membership to the golf club, you want all these other things, that's what I'm going to give you. What he's saying is I've just given you a charge and a command and a promise that you'll do greater things than I've done and see more people come into the kingdom through the preaching of, the, preaching of the word now I'm telling you how it's going to be done. So whatever I command, whatever I promise, ask it when you come together, and I'll
0: grant it. What, what would you say to, the obje- to those maybe who are thinking now through this a little bit? And, um, and, I'm, and I hate this expression, but I'm, I don't know how else to express it. Um, kind of a devil's advocate argument. Um, I hate that expression. Um, I, I hate it entirely. But anyway... What, what what would you say to people who say, "Well, the only reason these are greater acts is because the the Spirit now is coming in in His fullness." Pentecost has occurred, and now you see these great uh, these these great works, these great things happening because the Spirit is coming in His fullness. It, Amen. <laughs> see, I, one of those difficulties is being the host of the program is that I usually know the answer before I ask it. <laughs> um,
1: of course, we it, we it, attribute things to the Spirit. Um, what, what I should add there, though, is, is, again, the way the Spirit works is through means. means right. You do okay. not have because you do not ask. It's, it's interesting how John 14 through 16, Jesus, the no. strong emphasis is on the sending of the Spirit, which ultimately happened at the day of Pentecost. But again, what were the disciples doing? They waited in Jerusalem. They didn't say, well, let's sit at home. Because it doesn't matter what we do, the Spirit's going to come, whether we will it or not. They gathered together in the upper room, not simply the men, but the women, the whole church, was gathered together, and they were looking to Jesus, who is ascended into heaven, or about to be ascended into heaven, and and prayed before the day of Pentecost. Mm. So we see in Acts 1 and 2... That even the promised events at Pentecost and the sending of the Comforter, promised in in John fourteen through sixteen, is still a response to the corporate prayers of the people. Yep.
0: Well, I knew you were going to say that, but I but I wanted you to say it, so I said it. The other thing I and I've learned something very interesting about just in doing this discussion is that don't ever do an interview of a book on a Kindle. <laughs> 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 joke of course um, it's aggravating because I'm trying to flip through and and, and craft some questions as, I, as I'm listening to dr. McGraw talk and and try to connect these things, and I'm having a difficult time so um, I'm a little disjointed so we, we've we've established the, the text we, we, the the context and what it's driving towards, but again, for me the the, the million dollar question is so then how does Corporate prayer and preaching, how do, they, how do they influence, how does one influence the other? I think that's your argument, is that corporate prayer will impact the preaching of Scripture. I mean, it doesn't need to do that, but you, I think you're arguing that it will do that, or could.
1: I think maybe a, a different way to put it is the Lord has designed corporate prayer and preaching to work hand in glove. So they're designed to be conjoined together, to work together, to have a a symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that a minister can't say uh, in the open air, as as some have done in the past, preach to a completely unbelieving, unconverted uh, audience and not see uh, great results by the blessing of the Spirit. And obviously those people aren't praying for him. But someone somewhere probably is. And uh, you've mm. probably heard the, the story from the life of Spurgeon where somebody asked him what the real success mm. mm-hmm. behind his ministry was and the real power behind his preaching, and he took them to the basement of the church, and there was a good number of people that were gathered there that were praying for the ministry of the Word, and he said, that's the secret of my success and, and the blessing of the Word. So I think that's, that's what, we're, what we're really emphasizing is the people of God under the appointment of God asking the Lord to bless preaching as a means and to use the preaching of the Word. So they're designed to, to work together, and that's why the purpose of the prayer meeting should be to further the gospel through the preaching of the Word.
0: The booklet has, and I'm thankful for this, I'm, I, I tend to gravitate towards the practical side to these discussions i'm i 'm not the most theologically i, I don 't know how to say that but anyway the the booklet has a a nice section um, on practical conclusions uh, that are drawn out of this it 's not just you know pie in the sky idealism but um you kind of get down to the the, the the nuts and bolts of things about corporate prayer specifically as it feeds itself as it feeds into the 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 the, the importance and the benefit of preaching and and, and 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 you do that in the book and and you start out with the the issue of prioritizing corporate prayer now we've kind of talked about that a little bit already I think, so I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on that but a great number of churches don't this isn't a priority and and so for instance, if someone's listening to this podcast and they're burdened with the reality that you know, I'm convinced um, we we ought to be praying as a church. I'm not an officer. I'm not an elder. What do you, what do you tell them to do? Uh, what what should they do, other than pray? Pray that the church would have a corporate prayer meeting. Okay. Besides that,
1: I, I think yeah, and and uh, obviously that's the best and most important thing is to begin there. If if you're talking about someone who's not a church officer, then I think it would be worthwhile approaching the officers of the church about the issue. Um, If you do that, don't come across as indignant or complaining Mm. that you're not doing something. It may be in our day and age that your officers have really never been approached with this type of thing before and have never uh, thought much about it. Perhaps if they started a prayer meeting, they wouldn't know exactly how to run it or, or what to do next. So perhaps one thing to do is one reason why uh, Joel and I have, have made these booklets the size and the price that they are is that we hope that people are more likely to read them because there's, there's less uh, demand on your time and, and your pocketbook. And so give them a copy of it. There was, um,
0: no, there was no kickback to that advertisement either, by the way. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, I was thinking I, uh, it. I'm sure somebody else was too. No, that's a great point, actually. I, I actually did that with um, with um, Dr. Beakey's book on the family at church. Um, I, I bought my, I bought 30, a number of copies, whatever. I don't remember how many. Uh, I don't want to be untruthful. Um, but I brought a number of copies and, and, and gave them away to people. Not and, and, and basically just set them on the table at church and said, they're there. I bought them for you read enjoy, and and didn't target any necessarily anybody so that no one could take, get the impression that I was trying to, that I had an agenda or anything like that. But that's a great suggestion. And since you brought that up, um, it, it is, a, it's a really handy booklet form of, like tracked level um, length. And um, <clears throat> that would be a great thing to do. Um, and I'm thinking about my own context. You know what I'm referring to uh, where I'm currently laboring now, um, they don't have a prayer meeting. And, and I'm teaching through some of these basic things in our Sunday school program, and I think that's a great suggestion. Um, where would they get it?
1: Um, you could get it through heritagebook.org, which is Reformation Heritage website. I believe they're also available on Amazon, and all of the booklets in the series are either um, a hard copy or um, a Kindle edition and so they're fairly easily accessible. I think they're $2 a
0: piece, so they're fairly inexpensive. Yeah, and Amazon has everything, by the way. But anyway. <laughs> no, that's a great suggestion, and I think it's, it's, it's a way to help people who maybe, maybe wouldn't go all the way with that and say I'm going to buy 20 copies or 50 copies or 100 copies and give them out to people, um, but buy one and 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 read it for yourself and and understand the 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 connection and the intricacy of these two subjects because they are important i'm I'm glad you mentioned the Spurgeon illustration because I was thinking of that even before we started talking uh you know officially anyway on the air about this that the, the Spurgeon often credited his preaching to the fact that no one would say Spurgeon couldn't preach so um but he would say it was because people prayed and the church prayed right. for it um which, you know, if you're sitting in the pew, maybe, uh, you know, this is Monday, so many people have been in worship Sunday, and they've heard preaching, good or bad or indifferent. Um, but maybe you're thinking, I wish my pastor would preach better. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet that that, that that thought has crossed some people's minds, at least more, more than once. Um, but the real question is, first, individually, are you praying for your pastor and his preaching? It's hard work. I I can attest to that. I know Doctor McGraw can attest to it. It's hard work. Um, But then, is the church praying? We want to see our ministers bring God's word because it is His word to the people with effectiveness. But then we don't pray for it to be effective. Right. There's a divorce. There's a. There's a. Something's missing. And I think that's the whole point that you're trying to emphasize. At least. At least a a fundamental point.
1: You know and. And in addition to what I said to your earlier question, I think there are various practical hindrances for people as well with a prayer meeting. Obviously, if there's, there's scheduling conflicts, that's, that's one thing, um, such as the young man I mentioned that's still at work mm-hmm. at that time of night and, and can't actually come. Um, other times, people don't set up the right priorities. I love the story that uh, Joel tells about his son— where um, I, believe, I believe he was in high school, mm-hmm. and the one sport that they had him doing was, was soccer. soccer. By the way, uh, as an aside, if any parents are listening, my uh, practical tangential advice here is be careful not to get your children into too many sports. And if they're off somewhere every night of the week, that's way too much. And I think Joel's practice of letting them do one was wise and finding something that doesn't require them to work on Sunday. But one year, the soccer practice was going to be on Wednesday night, and and Joel decided his son was getting older and and needed to make his own decisions and was becoming an adult. And he said, well, I'm going to leave this up to you. You know, Are you going to go to to soccer practice or or prayer meeting, and I'm genuinely going to let you make the decision? And his son thought about it and prayed about it and said, well, Dad, I think the prayer meeting is far more important and i'll i'll just not do soccer this year. And that's an a, an an aspect where you're not compelled to work and staying at your job late at night, but you're actually having to make a sacrificial decision to give up something else that maybe in some ways you'd rather do in order to commit to something that's that's biblically needed and helpful and and serves the church. Um, Another thing is some people don't come to the prayer meeting um, because they're afraid to pray publicly or they don't know how to pray. And they feel like if they're there, there's going to be too much pressure. Uh, Just a couple of things I want to note there. Um, One is, I guess, sometime, I think in 2014, I wrote an article for Ordained Servant Online, which is the OPC's magazine on online for officers, and it's all free and it's it's there mm-hmm. permanently. And that's part of why I did it with them on how to pray at prayer meetings, mm. and it goes through the very uh, the, the, some practical suggestions about how you approach this and and what you want to do in the corporate prayer, for example. Um, you want to avoid things like I think this or I think that or <laughs> or uh, my sin. You want to think about saying we and praying in a way that everybody in the room can identify with and say amen to, and that's just one example. Uh, the other example is I had a man who hadn't been coming because um, he was afraid to pray, And after preaching on this subject, he felt convicted that he needed to come. And so I told him a story about uh, Stonewall Jackson, where allegedly he wasn't very good at praying uh, publicly, but uh, was convinced he needed to be an example to his men. And so he prayed at the prayer meeting, and the minister heard him and thought it was so awful that the man was never going to pray ever again. (laughs) That's encouraging. (laughs) But he decided that because it was important and he needed to be an example to the troops, he committed to it and decided he was going to get better. And the fact is, if you're afraid to pray at the prayer meeting, you are probably more self-conscious about yourself than others will be about your prayers. Um, and, And so pray simply. And to the point, and you don't have to to pray long, in other words, and focus on the purpose of the meeting. And I know I've been talking a lot here, but the only other thing I want to add at this point is another reason why people don't come to prayer meetings is when they have small children in the home. Um, Our boys are are seven, six, and four, and then we have a nine-month-old daughter, so we understand uh, with that phase of life, and so you're you 're disrupting bedtimes um, and that 's often difficult if you 're going to evening worship then you 're doing that twice a week and so there is going to be a, a liability there. but I want to say a couple of things in my experience i 've seen that children who are not brought to and and don 't participate in prayer meetings become adults who don 't participate in prayer meetings. Mm-hmm because they felt like it's not for them and they're not a part of it. Um, In our church in Sunnyvale, we actually had a good number of children that went to the prayer meeting. We did not require any of them to pray, but we did welcome even the prayers of our children. And we did have a few of our young people, and when I say young people, I mean real young, Mm -hmm. like like Mm -hmm. seven, eight years old, who would pray at the prayer meeting, and we would tell them that they, too, can spread the gospel through their prayers, even if they pray one or two sentences. And to look at it as part of their ministry to the church, their fellowship of the saints, and that the prayer meeting is not just something the adults do. And uh, as more children came, of course, and they enjoyed seeing the other children, and there's nothing that, that encourages a church at a prayer meeting more than a child coming to the throne of grace and begging the Father to spread the glory of Christ and give the Spirit to the pastor. Mm. And that's a glorious thing. And we shouldn't be intimidated with our children. It's worth the cost of being late for a bedtime to show them that this is a priority for the family.
0: I sometimes wonder, and this is just a... Hmm. I sometimes wonder, and, and I've made this comment to my own pastor, actually, that um, and I think there's a connection, that my corporate worship is enhanced when I'm engaged in private worship during the week. Now, I know they're not the same thing. I know that one is far more important than the other, and God speaks and works differently in corporate worship than he does in private worship. I get all that. I sometimes wonder if people don't come to corporate prayer because they're really not even privately engaged in a in a in a concerted habitual private prayer life
1: yeah and i i think I think that can go both ways, actually. Yep, yep. That sometimes we go to the the corporate meetings and the corporate exercises and neglect our private worship. And we check the box and, yeah. In some sense, it's easier just to be there and go through the process, and we could develop a hypocrisy in doing so and not have a true communion with God for ourselves first before we're participating in communion with God in the Mm. public assemblies. Mm Mm-hmm. But it can also go the other way, that if we're neglecting our private worship and we're, we're lukewarm in that respect, then, of course, it's not going to be likely that we
0: are excited about the public worship and public prayer either. So I, th- I think both of those can be true. Let me ask a practical question. You're a seminary professor now. Welcome to the world of—well, you've been doing it, but by distance. It's a little different now, I and mean, I think you, you would acknowledge that. You know, being here, it's going to—well, anyway— and I'm a student. I'm a fourth-year student. Everybody knows this. Um, and, and, and I sometimes wrestle. Um, w- we have corporate prayer meeting at our church on Wednesday night. And, um, and so now you're going to be able to put your professor hat on for a second. You're talking to seminary students who um, are training for the ministry and probably agree with everything you've just said. But they're in class all day. They're, they're bombed with work from one end to the other. They um, They have families. Little kids, they have all that going on, and um, now they're being asked to participate in this activity of the church, as important as and helpful and necessary as it is. But there are some weeks it's just you know what, I'm blown. I can't take on one more thing. I mean, how would what would you say to them? I mean, is it like, is the is the sky going to fall if they don't show up for one prayer meeting? And and of course, keep in mind the whole fishbowl mentality that seminary students tend to tend to float around in. You know, you're a ministerial candidate. How come you're not at prayer meeting? You know, that kind of stuff.
1: I think we need to be patient and, and gracious with people, um, not just as seminary students, but with, with church members, too. And I was sure. almost going to say earlier, uh, don't, don't be upset or discouraged if people aren't flooding into the prayer meeting right away, and, and this is a long-term thing. Mm-hmm. And often that's true with students as well, uh, we expect more of students in in many respects sometimes legitimately sometimes illegitimately. We should also expect uh most students, especially as they're younger, to have a lot of immaturities and rough edges and things that they need to work through, and we need to give them uh some space to to do that um in in terms of my uh professor hat i I guess instead of a seminary professor i'd i'd rather regard myself as uh a minister of the gospel who my church called to train future ministers. So, uh, fine. <laughs> that's, uh, I'm not going to quibble over it. <laughs> professor is fine, but, um, but obviously that's, that's what I'm doing. Um, and the, the only reason I state it that way is I think that my, my task is still uh, ecclesiastical, churchly, and it's still pastoral. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so I want to approach this that way. I think one of the biggest pitfalls that seminary students fall into is to convince themselves that they're going to have a lot of time uh, to do all the things they wanted to do after they
0: graduate. (laughs) <laughs> You're laughing. I am you, because I you know understand. I. am beginning to. I mean, in just in my brief stint with the, the church that I'm, I'm I'm working with right now, I I, I mean it's becoming very clear. <laughs> um, well, that's the thing is if you if you don't prioritize
1: your reading now, uh, maybe the first thing I should say is if you don't prioritize your families now. Um, and and you don't prioritize things like a prayer meeting now, then it's very unlikely that you're going to be willing to do so later. Mm. And um, I, I don't say that to discourage any men who may be listening to this as well, because the other thing that I would say is the Lord increases our gifts and graces with using them. And so while things like preaching are always going to be difficult in their own way, if you're faithful with what you have and you trade with the talents the Lord has given you, He will give you more. Mm-hmm. And you will be more efficient. You will grow in grace. You will grow in your gifts. And so you need to start doing it now. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that if you miss a prayer meeting here and there, that, that somehow the session needs to come Knock on your door and and call you to repentance or threaten some sort of discipline process. That's not what we're talking about. Um, but what we are talking about is in a general course of life, learning to prioritize the prayer meeting and treating it as a discipline. Maybe asking yourself the question: um, Is there something else that I can give up instead? Am I watching too much television? Am I doing too many hobbies? recreational activities? Is there something else I can organize? Am I just simply not keeping track of my time uh, well enough in order to give me the time for the Mm -hmm. prayer meeting? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll do all those things, and you still won't be able to do it. Uh, We arrived in Greenville on a Wednesday night after driving 3,000 miles over several days and got in around dinner time. As much as I advocate the prayer meeting and love the prayer meeting, we didn't go to prayer meeting that night. Uh, we put the boys to
0: bed at seven o'clock, and there are going to be things where that happens. Yeah, providential things are going to yeah. are going to cause that, no question. And I'm certainly not arguing that, you know, providential means sometimes happen. That happens on the Lord's Day too. Um, but I, I, I ask asked that question because it, there is a sense in which um, seminary students do live in that almost hyper scrutiny level and almost unfair at times I I will say Um, as an older seminary student where um, in some sense it's justified expectation because of what they're training to do agreed and sometimes it's just unrealistic but this really leads to the next question I have for this corporate prayer is corporate prayer we get together we have prayer meetings to corporately pray as a church what I often have seen in my experience in various churches is that it, it becomes another Bible study and prayer sort of gets stuck on the back end of it, and then we call it a prayer meeting. What would you rather see? Is that the way you would like it done? Would that be the ideal, or is there a better way? I think the way we structure
1: the prayer meeting is is going to depend on the circumstances of the Church, largely. Um, For example, in the church I pastored in the PCA, we uh, did not have a midweek study, and we only had the Wednesday night prayer meeting. So what we did was we split it 50-50. We did a short study, and then we spent uh, the rest of our time in prayer and tried to focus and emphasize the prayer meetings uh, the way that I've described. and, And really... That was because that was the only time we had any kind of other Bible study or Christian education. So we did Mm -hmm. combine the two things, and I think um, that really wasn't ideal, Um, but it worked. And and it was functional both as a prayer meeting and as the study. And usually one didn't crowd out the other. If I had to prioritize one, I would always prioritize the prayer aspect and cut the study short and pick up next time if we had to. Um, I often tried to do studies that, that more directly related to prayer as well, because mm. that's always a, a difficult aspect of people's private lives to cultivate, sure. is how sure. do I pray, and and that's probably the hardest aspect of, of our personal piety. So we, we almost always did something on prayer in the study anyway. So that's one way to do it. Um, in Sunnyvale, I did uh, Sunday school. I preached morning and evening worship. I had a Tuesday... Uh, Bible study, I was teaching a seminary class on Tuesday afternoons, plus a whole bunch of other stuff, including visits and presbytery obligations and other meetings. Of course, meetings.
0: that was Tuesday night here in the real so, world.
1: Um, Tuesday <laughs> afternoon in, in uh, yeah, in, in the
0: real, real world.
1: So uh, <laughs> On the East Coast, you know. <laughs> so basically, there at the prayer meeting, I, I, I did a brief meditation... Almost always on prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes we did things just on personal piety in general, like some meditations from Proverbs, which we would then pray about and ask for the Lord to work them into the congregation. Um, Doing something through prayer is always helpful. I would uh, aim to keep the meditation at five minutes. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: the only purpose of the meditation was to help us pray. And so that way, uh, and, and at maximum it, with feedback, sometimes it would go to 10 minutes, but, mm-hmm. uh, that way we had a full hour blocked out and we would spend almost all the time in prayer. Yeah. I was
0: in a church, um, one you're familiar with, um, before I moved to Greenville. Um, th- th- that's essentially what they did. A short meditation to, you know, to assist, uh, you know, help set the framework in our minds. Cause we just came from work and chaos of life and whatever. And, um, or whatever the circumstance may have been. But what I really appreciated about the way they did their corporate prayer meeting was that they had a whole time where um, it was just adoration, thanksgiving. There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't hardly any petitions at that point. and And everybody prayed in the church. I remember the first time I went into that congregation, uh, the men prayed, the women prayed, the children prayed. I almost fell down. I mean, every child in that place prayed. I couldn't believe it. I, I'd never seen anything like that in my That's life. A blessing. It was incredible. I was like, what? <laughs> I was almost intimidated at some level by this. Um, but And then they would have a season, so they would do that around the room, and then the pastor would pray at the end of that, and then he would say, okay, now we're going to spend time in petition, supplication, and then they would do it again. And i, and I got to tell you, some of those prayer meetings lasted an hour, an hour and a half long. Um, now, if you have a church that's not at that place yet, obviously you're not going to start that day one, uh, but that's something to shoot for or work for aim for um, down the road, but I guess I asked the question because oftentimes in the seminary community, but I don't think it's just re- re- just for the seminary community, but I think, you know, we're in classes all day long. We come, we, we, we go to a prayer meeting, and we get 45 more minutes of lecturing, and we just came from that all day long. We're tired, and you know, we want to pray. Not, mm-hmm. yeah, that's my point. I, I guess, you know, is the corporate prayer to be prayer meeting, or is it a Bible study with prayer attached on? I think you answered that question. You've actually gave me another thought for another podcast, which we'll talk about after we stop recording this one. Ryan, it's been good. I mean, it's been long. We're about, well, we're over an hour now talking about this. I think the, the emphasis that you've established in the booklet does, does it even more fully um, as well is that, that intimate connection organic connection really between corporate prayer and the preaching of God's Word, how they work together, and the importance and necessity of prioritizing this in our lives. I think we could safely assume, with not with any infallibility at all, but um, I've often said this from the pulpit in preaching, I bet you have said this or something like it, that we look at the state of our church and our country in the United States and we see the moral fallout and the, <clears throat> the immoral activities and they grieve us. But the people of God don't pray together about these things, and are they connected? Is God speaking to the Church and saying, you're not seeking my kingdom. You lament the society in the culture, but you do not go out and do these things that I have graciously given you. You don't ask. You don't have. I don't know. I mean, that's not infallible, but I just wonder if there's a connection.
1: I think all. that's often the case, and, and maybe what I'll close with is is uh, years ago, Doctor Wilborn came and spoke at our church in in Conway, and he made a comment about the prayer meeting, and said that that the prayer meetings are the primary means of promoting revival in the church. You know, in, in terms of spiritual sure. awakening, people sure. coming to Christ, that type of thing, um, and and yet when our prayer meetings are full. We need to ask the question, has revival already come? Mm-hmm. And so the two things do tend to go hand in hand. It's a means, but it's also a result.
0: Yep. Well, it's been good. I mean, I, I individually, personally, selfishly, this is a subject that I really wanted to talk about because it's something I'm going to be addressing soon in a different context. But, um, but I really appreciate just the candidness in the discussion. And uh, it's been even convicting at some level for my own soul so i do appreciate your time and you've given me fodder for some other podcasts by the way <laughs> and i've written them down so i would not forget um those as well so uh, it's good to have you on board um your office is right next to mine so this ought to be interesting a mac against a pc guy with only a wall separating us and he's a giants fan <laughs> there's something seriously wrong in the universe <laughs> but anyway a uh, little humor um to the end the discussion. Uh, but Ryan, uh, thank you again for the time. And, Thanks, uh, Bill. I always it. enjoy it. I know your life has been a little crazy with the move and everything and all that fun stuff. Um, coming up on the program, uh, go to the website. It's the easiest way. I say that almost every single time. Um, confessingourhope.com Again, I've redesigned it. Uh, hopefully it's easier for you. Give me feedback. Uh, and don't forget about the Faith and Practice segments. Um, Writing your questions. You can do that on the website. If you use Twitter, you can use Twitter, use the, hashtag, use the hashtag, if you use Twitter, you know what that is, GPTSFP, it stands for Faith and Practice, GPTSFP. If you do that, I will get the question there on Twitter. The advantage of Twitter questions is you can only use 140 characters, and so there will be short questions. Um, but use that if that's easier. I don't care one way or the other. There's the form on the website uh, where you can write lengthier questions um, and use that as well. Um, But again, if you send a question in, we use it on the program. $10 discount coupon to Banner of Truth. Um, So uh, take advantage of that as you're able. So until next time, whenever that will be. uh, It's summer, so it's a little less structured. um, But whenever that is, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and God bless.